The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money here on News Talk 1493 FM. You're invited to join the program by calling 217-356-9397 or send a text on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line 217-351-5357. Opinions and views expressed in this program are those of the host and guests and not necessarily those of the station. And now, On the Money with your host, Paul Rudy. Well, good uh, Tuesday morning, everybody. Happy New Year's. Welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money radio show. My 32nd year, I think. Might be the 33rd, but somewhere in there. Hard to believe it. I was young like you guys when I started doing this show. Actually, (laughs) I was about your age. I was about exactly your your age, David. Um, I was about 30 years old. And uh, wow, what an interesting 30 years that has been. And uh, I've kind of archived it over all these years. Anybody listening to the show uh, consistently knows that we have a consistent theme, that's for sure. If anything, I'm not sure it's good or bad, but it's certainly consistent. And uh, I think that's one of the things that the feedback I get and some of the things that one of the things people appreciate is kind of that consistent theme. I mean, you guys have seen that in my newsletters every quarter, even clients kind of chuckle. You know, I had one in the office the other day. Goes, oh, let me guess this this January. You know, I'll be writing it, finishing it this week. And you're going to warn us about what could go wrong next, this year. <laughs> I said, well, you're sort of right. I'm always doing lifeboat drills. I'm here with certified financial planner professionals Ryan Repko and David Rudy, who both work with me at Rudy Wealth Management. Morning, guys. Morning. Good morning. You can call in your uh, in with your questions at two one seven three five six nine three nine seven or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line three five one five three five seven. You can also email your question to talk at wdws.com. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Well, guys, no Dr. Fred today. He's on a cruise. Um, you know, I wish you were on a cruise, Ryan. I certainly do. I'd be happy to be out on a, on a boat in the water in the sun right about now, especially uh, when you're stuck inside with kids. Yeah, three little ones. Yeah, so it's certainly nice to be out and about. And schools are open so for the, far? For the, for the moment, we've got one in school, one preschool is going to be out this week, so, you know, it's hit and miss. I think a lot of teachers are out and they're having an issue with um, making sure they have enough staffing. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, I've been talking about this a little bit. As you guys know, I'm an avid reader about COVID. I fancy myself <laughs> as a rather expert. And, Along uh, with the rest of the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually read all the research, and I have a, a good friend of mine, and client, Dr. Bruce Wellman, you know, who's one of the smartest guys I know, and he's always sending me updated articles. And I so I fancy myself, but it was clear, and he and I had talked towards the end of last year, and he was saying, you know, by mid-January, this thing's really going to hit the fan. <laughs> and he's uh, right on uh, target there. Uh, well, of all the, since it's New Year's, just briefly, um, Fidelity did a, a study uh, that, looking for the top three resolutions, New York New Year's resolu- uh, resolutions people make. Number one, you guys guess? Well, you probably saw the notes, so you, you wouldn't be guessing. I actually haven't seen the notes, so okay. I, I'm assuming it's like save more money. It is, saving more. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, universally, know. I think, everyone feels that way for the most part. What's the trick to saving more? I mean, is it automating it? Is it just is it just the discipline? Is it all check mark all of the, all of the above? But I, I, yeah, I think it's a combination of all of the above. But yeah, just more than anything, just controlling your spending, obviously. And then, you know, if you can find a way to increase your income, that obviously makes things a lot easier as well. So I, I do think sometimes our industry, you know, we focus so much on the like reduce your spending and in you know saving side of things, and we forget to talk about. Uh, you know, sometimes just the importance of doing things to increase your skill set and make yourself more valuable and increase your income because that has a huge impact, obviously. Yeah, I think yeah, I think you're right. A lot of people just say, well, I'll just take what I can get my, you know, either my no increase each year, my salary or a slight increase and keep, you know, just keep plugging on as a diligent worker. Sometimes you do have to take it into your own hands and, and take a little bit of ownership in the skill set that you offer or maybe retool and, and find a, a niche where somebody's maybe needed. Um, whether that's in your company or not, but it allows you the ability to put a little bit more control in your hands. What about the automation side, though? I mean, you you each have your set of clients, uh, at least a hundred each. Um, 
as you look back and talk with them, do you see a common theme as far as they just automated it? Because, you know, that's been my takeaway is the, for the most part, the only people that end up in their late 50s or early 60s with the critical mass to uh, mass, mass, not masked, uh, to retire the way they want, how they want, and hang around the people they wish to hang around are the people that seem to just kind of paycheck by paycheck put it in that 401k plan. That seems to be the common denominator from what I could tell. I think certainly anybody who's just like a diligent saver, it would be the one thing that I recognize is like from our client base. And obviously that's just our view of the clients that we see and not necessarily everybody. But I seem to think that we we self-select for a group of clients who are just kind of like put their head down, work and save type people. They're not They're not somebody who's like pursuing riches so much as they were just diligent savers growing up. I don't know. How do you feel? And I was going to mention specifically with the 401k, I think that seems to really help people because it's almost like they forget about it and they have, you know, X percent of their paycheck going into their 401k. I mean, with our, our clients, uh, for, I would say most of them, a large portion of their assets, it's in a big rollover IRA that came from their company 401k plan. That was the vast majority of their savings. And like Ryan said, they just kind of didn't pay too much attention to it. Which is the other, you know, important role of, you know, it's savings one thing, but then having it invested and keeping it invested. You know, that the not paying attention to it often ends up with better results than the people who try to, you know, follow the investment performance of their funds and then change their 401k allocation based on recent performance. That can end up actually causing major problems versus it seems like it works out a lot better for our clients. They're like, oh, I, I just didn't really know what I was doing, so I chose the target date fund and just kind of didn't pay attention to it till I retired. Yeah, it's kind of uh, interesting. You know, we all think that you have to knock it out from a rate of return standpoint, but I think we, as humans, we underestimate the the power of compounding, you know, or earning a just a reasonable rate of return for a a long number of years, and that's really would describe most people's work life. Um, there's a physicist, Albert Bartlett, he used to say, the greatest shortcoming in the human race is our inability to understand the exponential function. So, I mean, that it really kind of is what he's saying is, well, one, one of the biggest mistakes I see, and you guys have seen it also, is people interrupt that compounding, and it's very powerful, uh, very powerful. Um, and it kind of, to me, it's kind of relieves me of saying, hey, where can I get the best returns is, is not so important. It's where can I get reasonable returns for the longest period of time and let that compounding work for me. And it's amazing to see people. I mean, you guys obviously haven't been in the business as long as I am, but you each have a lot of clients that are millionaires next door that never lived like it. They were just regular working folks. And, you know, and I always tell them, I go, you know, you could have five people to the left of you and the right of you on that line at Kraft for all those years, and most of them don't have a fraction of what you have. And the only difference was they decided to set it on automatic pilot. And most of them will tell me, too. I've heard this so many times. Like, I was telling my coworkers, you know, you need to be doing this, and people just weren't weren't listening. and. Yeah, that's why they ended up the way that they did, and most people don't end up in that position. Yeah, so many people just they they can't look beyond today. You know, they think okay, but that's human though. I mean, it is. I mean, There's no fault to trait. it. So at some point, maybe the the diligent saver had some like sage advice imparted on them at some point in their life, where they said, you know, you need to to be thinking about not only today but also your tomorrows. And you know, maybe that was what you know kind of formed that that particular savers uh, investment foundation is just, it's always a, a balance. Do you think it becomes a habit? Oh, certainly. Because if you, especially if you start out that way, because if you start out presumably earning uh, the smallest, you know, wage that you are in your lifetime on the front end, uh, and you start saving then, you don't, you don't have to look for ways to cut back later if you start your investing later in life, 5, 10, 20 years down the road. By that time, like you've said, Paul, you've missed out on those compounding years, maybe the decades, um, and it's really hard to catch up because you need to have a giant, a giant savings rate if you're going to try to take control of what you want to do in retirement at a late point in your earnings career. You know, th- this is a little change of subject, but another kind of New Year's uh, thing that I've been seeing a lot is 
different pundits making market forecasts. Oh, I don't yeah, know well, if you guys that, have noticed the, that, but it's, it's that, time of, that the year. time of year. I, I think that might be worth discussing because I think a lot of times people give way too much uh, weight or credence to the forecasts that they hear from different people. And a lot of times they're looking back to the most recent year, you know, they end the year and and almost as if if it was a great year, they'll kind of extrapolate that into the next year. Uh, but the market doesn't even have a memory, does it? No, I mean, you know, I was talking to a client the other day and I was saying, you know, at the end of the day, what what influences market performance is new information that by definition is unforeseen. Because if you think about like where the market is today, it's based on everything that we know and also what we expect for the future as investors, as a group. Um, so anything that we know or already expect is kind of baked into prices. The stuff that really moves the market a lot and influences performance is stuff that is just totally unforeseen new information. And that's why I think it's just kind of silly when people make these forecasts, especially after the last few years that we've had. It blows my mind that people are still giving like one year return forecasts. Like, did we not learn our lesson? Like, after the last few years of just kind of wild, unforeseen events driving markets, it, and in a lot of ways, the surprise being how good returns were despite a lot of the unpleasantness that's going on economically and from like a COVID standpoint. It's like, how, how do we still, how do we never learn our lesson? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, and, you know, of course, being in the business we're in, the natural question even for us from our clients are, well, what do you think, what do you think about this year? Um, you, certainly you guys are getting that question, and, I mean, do you bite, or do you, or do you have sort of a pat answer? Uh, I, I think in just general terms, I would say, well, I'm always optimistic about the year as I am every year. This year is no different. There's going to be things that um, happen in the year that will have good or bad uh, events on the portfolio. The good news is when we as financial planners manage your investments, we already expect that these kinds of events will show up. We just don't know when they'll happen or the magnitude of which these events will happen on the good or bad side. But the good news is we've modeled these kinds of events in, and we expect that uh, within very normal terms that you'll be able to live within the, the planning guiding that we've given you. And it'll have very little to minimal impact on your life, good or bad. And we just address those points along the way once they show up. Um, the, there's no value in putting much um, time or effort into these year forecasts or six-month forecasts or what's going to happen this quarter forecast. It, it doesn't tell you anything. It's just somebody's opinion. Nobody knows. I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, that's a pretty powerful state when you think about it. Nobody knows, and, and it, 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 it's irrelevant. Uh, to success for from a, to become a successful investor, don't you think? I mean, we, we, we spend so much time in the financial industry and in the financial media trying to control what can't be controlled or talk, spending time on things that can't be, you know, in our control. What are returns going to be? Well, they're going to be what they're going to be. We can't control them. It seems to me, guys, that, you know, if, if, if there's anything that I would tell, you know, investors of any age is, you know, just the, the ability to ignore the current noise, which is very difficult, as it turns out, turns out to be a big problem. And if you can just, if you want to invest in something, invest in the dis, in discipline. And that's just keeping your head down, creating a plan. Of course, you know, uh, we're, we're planners by nature, but, I mean, how many successful people have you seen that didn't have a plan of some sort? I mean, do you, do you run into that very often? I mean, it, people, the ones that make it seem to be pretty deliberate. Yeah, you know, it doesn't seem to be super common. The only the like kind of outlier ones are the people who just saved and invested not even <laughs> for a particular goal. It was just kind of like what they did, and then they ended up with almost more money than they needed. But that's the exception as opposed to the rule. You know, the vast majority of people have kind of like a plan for where they're going, even if it's a very basic one. Um, but, yeah, I mean— I just think back to, you know, tw late 2019 or early 2020, all the market forecasts. I don't remember any <laughs> major forecasts predicting, you know, oh, we're going to have a 35% stock market decline. Because, right. You know, at that time. It was unknown. It was, right? it was unknown that, you know, COVID was going to be such a big, <laughs> a big deal globally, um, even, you know, even when the news first broke. And then no one expected, you know, that it was going to recover as quickly as it did. You know, once it did get truly ugly and, and the economy shutting down and things looked really bleak there, 
And then somehow the market recovers and goes back up past all-time highs. Why well, don't you think the somehow? Span. Don't you think the somehow is because the market it looks to the future? They're not looking behind, um, and the market suspected that, like every other crisis we've had in the past, an emergency, we either solved it or learned to live with it. And uh, and I guess it was really the market voting for human ingenuity would solve this problem, like it has so many of the emergencies of the past. I, I think that's what really, and Fred Gertz, Dr. Fred talks about that all the time. The market is a discounting mechanism. It has zero concern with what has happened already. It's only looking down the road and trying to figure out is the human ingenuity that has driven this permanent uptrend for the economy and permanent uptrend for earnings of the great companies of America and the world. Um, I guess it's probably the only r- real world view that squares with the facts, and I think that's what the market's always doing. It's always betting on human ingenuity, and that's a to bet against it is the only you know the other alternative is to bet against it, and that just quite exhausting, and it probably is certainly not going to fill your wallet. Yeah, having taking the pessimist approach, I think is just always going to leave you in a place of it's never going to get better. You know, the next shoe is always about to drop. Um, the investments are not going to perform, and it, I don't know. Well, isn't isn't that going on right now? I mean, how many times already this year have you heard, oh, the market's too high, Uh, it's gone so far so fast that returns, you know, every other article is returns, then the next few years have to be horrible. Yeah. Um, You know, I don't think that, I don't think the data bears that out. It doesn't. You know, and that's the reason I I really wanted to bring this up is one, it just kind of bugs me when I see people making these forecasts with so much conviction because I know people like our clients or you're just, just, general you know people who aren't investment experts they listen to those forecasts and they make decisions that probably are not great decisions based on those forecasts and it's just kind of frustrating <laughs> to me seeing that and knowing that's going to happen and that's why I, this is basically like my warning on the radio show like just kind of ignore those forecasts um but yeah i mean at at the end of the day I kind of lost train of thought. Well, you were just saying question. how it bugs you. I'm having a dad that, moment. That, that, you know, yeah, <laughs> I have them. I think it was get, get, I was getting to the point of in 2021 alone, we had we hit all time new highs 75 times, and you know, and and right now it's just this theme that well, the market can't go higher. What goes up must come down, uh, and therefore, uh, let's trim our stock portfolio. Um, at least that's what it would lead you to believe. But what we're hearing from clients is when well, we suggest that, you know, now that your critical mass is even higher than it was than it ever was, maybe it's time that we can even take some some uncertainty out of your uh, plan by reducing your stock market exposure. And they look at you almost cross-eyed like you're a goof. Um, and, and so I suppose you have one set of investors that are saying what goes up must come down and therefore I'm not I'm going to not even invest in the stock market and you have the other side that are saying well that may be true but bonds aren't going to provide any return to me it's a really interesting mm-hmm. environment right now um of course after the stock market rises 100% over 3 years i think doesn't that begin to skew expectations quite a bit yeah i think i think people just become you know, numb to it. And I think this is all it does. It goes up or just you just let recency bias take over and you think, oh, this is all positive. The march is always forward and onward. And and then you oftentimes find that those people obviously get the most surprise when, you know, anything but forward progress shows up. Even when we get those like really small, I don't even want to call them corrections, just small reductions. You know, five, six, seven percent like sudden week. down moves. Yeah. Yeah. Even a small one like last week, which was truly nothing. Uh, people get surprised by and I say that you know that's to be expected you know any given day of the week uh, and you know you know in, in even a little bit longer term but I'm thinking you know a, a, per- a period of a year to a few years people's expectations are definitely I think starting to get skewed because I was mentioning you know I had, had a client say you know ask kind of what the ex- long-term expected return of the portfolio was and I explained you know with this allocation you know, it's probably in the ballpark of 8%, but you'll probably get anything other than that, you know? Right. It, it, mm-hmm. it, we don't get the expected return. There's such a wide range around it, and this particular client was kind of surprised. They're like, well, we were up like 20% over the last year or so. Oh, you know, 8% seems low. And I was like, well, it's not that 8% <laughs> is low. It's that 20% is ab- abnormally high. Now, that that's not like that's unheard of for a one-year period, but we're thinking of, look, going forward over your lifetime, 
you can't expect a 20% compounded return, even if you were 100% stock, that just wouldn't be reasonable. So it's important to remember, you know, even if we're looking back 10 years or so, I think it's what the 10-year return on the S&P 500 is like 16% or yeah, close 16 to or 17% it. per year. Well, dividends it, reinvested. If you go back 100 years, it's been more like 10%. 10 yeah. So we're talking about, you know, 60% higher than the long-term average. And I think people don't always understand that how good the last decade has been, particularly for US large cap stocks and like, like I said, expectations are, are getting skewed for and, sure. And one thing we know, and it's been studied a lot, is that those expect people's they call it risk tolerance, but their appetite for risk or uncertainty, I think is a better word, or fluctuation might even be better, increases as the stock market goes up. And mm -hmm. when it goes through a really ugly period, that's when their appetite you know, for fluctuation is reduced. And that's particularly, and it's interesting because it's, it's counter cyclical because if you, you give me a stock market that's suddenly down by a third, and I'll show you a stock market that now has higher expected returns than it did before it declined, yet people's appetite for taking on that additional fluctuation. Right now, there's no appetite to reduce the stock market allocation, you know, even if it's broadly diversified. Uh, because the ultimate, the, the natural question, if you suggest taming it down a bit, taking some uncertainty off the table, uh, is, well, what what are you going to invest it in? And it is short-term, high-quality bonds. What are those paying? About what they've always paid over the long term after taxes and inflation, pretty close to nothing. And people will tell me, well, I remember when CDs were at 9%. I said, yes, and you paid 3% or 4% of it in tax, certainly a, th a third of it in tax, and so now you're down to 6 and your inflation rate was probably 5 or 6 or, you know, percent. So you really fixed income producing investments. It sounds like I'm talking against them, and I'm not. But short term high quality bond funds and fixed income producing investments have never created wealth, and they and they won't maintain wealth if you're spending the income. Only the only way they do uh, preserve their purchasing power is if you kind of reinvest the interest rate, and that's not what people do in retirement. So that's the paradox right now. Um, is yeah, we probably ought to, you know, because we can, we ought to reduce our uncertainty, but then the alternative investment doesn't look so good. We're going to go to Mike on line one. Mike, good morning and happy new year. Hi, same to you guys. Uh, quick question for you. My son's in the financial industry and he's always sending me articles about ways to invest uh, the money that I am uh, taking out of our IRA gradually that... Uh, Fortunately for us, it's more than we can actually spend. Good so I, I need some way to, to keep from it just sitting in a you know zero zero point two percent interest account. And he sent me an article about I bonds. Yes, we and talked I'm, about those I'm aware two of weeks limitations. ago. Yeah. Oh, okay, I, I I had you queued up to listen to the podcast. No, I'm happy to discuss I, it again. I, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't mean it that way. I meant we're happy to discuss yeah, it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so you know the limitations. Whether that is, any investor can spend, yeah. invest ten thousand, and uh, for some people, you know, they have so much money that they don't. They're not going to spend that hour trying to get it done, or whatever it is. And but you know, it, there's certainly a delicious payoff uh, for yeah. that money that goes into I bonds right now. The base rate zero, but you get at least the inflation rate. And if inflation turns out to be five, six, seven percent, you're at least going to get that. And that's a better return that you can get in money markets and CDs and things like that. It's a little bit of a, the website's not exactly pleasant. It's not exactly easy, but it's also not ah. impossible. Uh, so, okay. you know, if you're sitting around and you're not really doing anything and you, time is, uh, is your big asset, uh, spend the time, educate yourself on the website and, you know, uh, you can invest $10,000 per person. Um, and uh, certainly something oh, per that. person. Oh, oh. Yes. Okay, I missed that. It, oh, okay. All right. So, good. and I'm not good. sure if well, there's a way to do it in, in a joint basis where you can get to 30, but I'm not. I'm not. I don't remember that. But at least you know, if if you're married, or, uh, both each yeah. spouse can uh, do ten thousand dollars. And you know, what, for right now, it seems like a free lunch, and it kind of is. Um, it's a good deal. Uh, but again, if if you're sitting on a million dollars, okay, you can put ten thousand of it in it. And it's kind of like, okay, it doesn't move the needle much. But some people, it doesn't matter on that 10000 if they can earn 6 or 7% for the next six months versus probably zero 
or maybe one or two percent, it's it's a worthwhile exercise. Well, just trying to every chance you get, try to beat inflation is you know the, the main. I thing. I so, agree. I mean, at least with an I bond, what you're getting is just the inflation return. Okay, so you're yeah. you tread water, but that's better than the alternative. If you bought a CD at one percent, if you can get a one percent CD, maybe you can. Uh, you know, with a 6% inflation rate, you know, you're going to lose 5%. So you avoid that. It would be nice if a person could do it with a large sum of money and do it easily, uh, but they're not designed for that. You guys have anything else to add? No, I, that was a great overview. I did such a, I did such a great <laughs> yeah. job. Well, see, Mike, even my kids said I did a good job on that. So we did have a, a, a person or a client that had asked Thanks, me Mike. about I-bonds specifically and once we talked more about it, it, they were in the category where they ultimately decided, like, ah, it's not worth <laughs> dealing with it for the small amount we can invest. So that that is an unfortunate limitation. But, yeah, mm-hmm. objectively, I mean, right now, if you can get a 7% int- guaranteed interest rate on an I-bond, that just crushes anything right. you can get mm-hmm. with, right. you know, other bonds. And it sounds like Mike was uh, – talking about like his required minimum distributions out of his IRA maybe that he's being forced to take the money out of the IRA he wouldn't Pay have spent otherwise. Yep. So it's like an imposed uh, ruling that you have to take this money out so the government realizes tax revenue. So he's just looking for an alternative as a result of the, the tax laws that he's subject to as we all are. Um, so it makes sense maybe for somebody. And he's paying attention to the details which yeah. you know makes sense. I mean every penny counts. A penny saved is a penny earned. But th- I mean then the uh, low maintenance approach is just you can open a taxable brokerage account right the Mm -hmm. same custodian you have your ira uh, open at and move your required minimum distribution over into that brokerage account withhold taxes you know put the proceeds the after-tax proceeds in that account and just basically continue to invest the same way you were investing in your ira or just keep your household asset allocation consistent so you don't necessarily I think sometimes people almost overcomplicate it and think they need to do something totally different when they have their required minimum distribution. Right. You're not forced to spend it. You're just forced to extract yeah. it out of your IRA. But this inflation has been, you know, uh, certainly been the headline stealer for several months now, really longer. For It was kind of anticipating inflation. We were told it was transitory. Um, they've quit using that word. And now the Federal Reserve says they're determined to tackle inflation. But people often ask me, well, what do you think the best inflation hedge is? I said, well, I think the best inflation, my personal opinion is the best inflation uh, protection vehicle uh, that made by the hands of humankind is the great companies of America and the world. They have a terrific, not, not perfect, but a really strong track record of being able to not only meet inflationary returns, but exceed them there are periods when they don't, but overall, over one's lifetime, um, if history's any guy, pretty good expectations that, you know, at the end of the day, for lots of reasons, companies can increase their prices, at least good quality companies can, and most companies can, and they can increase their prices. And then even people in short-term, in, in short-term uh, high-quality fixed income, they get really concerned about inflation. But if we have high inflation, we're ultimately going to have higher interest rates, and they're going to build these their bonds are eventually going to compensate for that inflation. And I don't think it does as much long-term harm to investors with the plan as some people might think. Yeah. I, I Don't you think a lot of people are jumping to the like extreme scenario? I mean, I've, I've heard some people say, we're going to have hyperinflation. Well, the gold market certainly doesn't suggest that. It's been falling now for about a month or so. And, and there's some key hard asset indicators that are saying, eh, maybe maybe the Fed's actually serious about this. And, uh, you know, of course, there's been a whole audience out there or, or, or pundits suggesting for 15 years or so that we're going to have hyperinflation. They did that after 2008, 2009, great financial crisis. And I was consistently saying, no, we're not going to have, we're not going to, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, even though you might take it at a grain of salt, the administration was saying after all the stimulus in 2008, 2009, that someday we're going to pay it back. Um, that wasn't that didn't take place this year. There's no confidence or anybody even talking about paying it back. In fact, that increasing taxes, et cetera, just for increased spending, not for doing anything about the debt. So I think that psychological component of oh, I, I explained it to a friend of mine the other day. I said, suppose you get uh, someone walks up to you, I walk up to you, and I say, here's ten thousand dollars. You can do whatever you want with it. 
and then I walk away and you think, oh, you start thinking about, oh, wow, free money. I'm going to go out and spend it. You know, it's free. I, and then, then maybe someone says, well, does he want you to pay it back? You go, I didn't ask, you know, because I think how you spend that money is completely different if there's an expectation that somehow you're going to pay it back. When it comes to taxpayers in the U.S., it's, okay, I got this stimulus, but somehow my taxes are going to go up and I'm going to be paying it back in some format. So therefore, I may spend, I may save it or save a large portion of it as opposed to just going out and consuming it. I think, I think that's a big component of it. Um, and just the fact that we've dropped, like Milton Friedman talked about helicopter money. He goes, if you really want inflation, you just drop $100 bills out of the helicopters and people will go out and spend it and you'll have higher inflation. In many senses, that's what's happened. Uh, probably four or five trillion dollars have been. So, But now the Federal Reserve at least is saying, hey, we're taking it serious. And that's why we've seen a lot of the, at least the pundits are saying that's why we're seeing the NASDAQ, the high-tech right. stocks getting hit by 7 or 8% just in the last week. And, uh, uh-oh, we're gonna, maybe now we're not going to get three increases in interest rates this year. Maybe we're going to get four. Maybe one of them's coming in March instead of June. So I think the market, the stock market participants are trying to recalibrate, is my guess. And that's at least a plausible explanation for what's going on and why there's a little heartburn in the stock market right now. It could be just we haven't had a 10% correction for a couple of years, it seems like. Uh, but we've barely had 5% corrections if we've even had one in the broad U.S. market. Okay. So I think, you know, unlike you guys, that won't, when a client asks you, what do you think about this year? You know, well, dad, you know, <laughs> he's going to give his thoughts. I say, you know, we're not going to operate off of what I think. But I'm always trying to set ex- people's expectations. You guys know that. And my if, as I look out, I think, oh, the economy's probably going to be really strong, but uh, let's not get used to double-digit returns. You're probably in mid-single-digit returns for the year, and that wouldn't be all bad. That's kind of what my brain expects. We don't do any planning around that. Uh, we completely ignore returns are going to be what they're going to be. Um, I always just kind of think this is kind of extreme, but I always just think in terms of like over the next year, I think the stock market returns probably somewhere between – Negative 50% and positive 50%. You, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you don't have the experience. That probably have. covers 99% of the like range of outcomes. Well, in reality, I always tell people the reason stocks have earned two to three times the returns net of inflation of bonds is because that is how stocks, that you know, stocks might be up 20 or 30% next year. They might be down 20 or 30%. Bonds don't do that. In general, bonds don't do that. And so it's, it's, the, it's that unpredict, the unpredictability is the if someone said why do stocks earn two to three times the returns historically than bonds? Is because of one word unpredictability. We do have a call. We have Bill on line one. Bill, happy new year. Yes, sir, Bill. I uh, got your radio on. If you can kind of tone that oh, down gosh. a little bit, we're good. Hi, Bill. Um, I was telling the gentleman, he asked me what I was going to talk about, and uh, you know, people talk about the market, stock market going up. And that what goes up's got to come down. And there's a reason why that's not true in the case of the stock market. And the reason is what you've been saying for years. You're buying ownership of the biggest and best companies in the world. And those companies produce a product that people buy, use up, and then have to have more of. So therefore... As consumers continue to consume, there's no reason really for the market to go down other than just temporarily. Now then, like you were just talking a little bit ago, not to really worry about a year or two years. and But over the long term, things will continue to grow. Now, how do you deal, Bill? Um, I don't know how old you are, but I have a lot of clients that are in their 70s yep. and 80s, and they'll look at me. And and the re, and there's a real actual reason why I always say lifetime returns instead of long term because if I, especially when I was my kids' ages, you know, when I was in this business thirty or thirty two, and I'm talking to a seventy two year old, and if I say long term, they look at me like I'm a kook, and you know, I can see in the back of their brain, they're thinking, well, your long term and mine are two different issues. How do you deal with that issue that, as we get older? Does that that I does the, this idea about the long term does that alter your the way you think or invest? 
No, it really doesn't. You know, I've talked to financial planners, different ones over a period of time. Each of them always talked to me about spending down my assets after I retired. Now, I've been retired ever since I was 52 years old. Wow. But that's been the case for me. I've constantly continued to make my assets grow, my liquid assets right. grow over those years. And that's been my goal. To live comfortably, and I'm not living out here and freezing to death or sure. going out food, whatever, you know. I drive a decent car. I don't have to have the biggest and the fanciest car or biggest and fanciest new tractor or whatever else. But I just want something that serves me well. And then I'm going to live less than my means, and I'm going to continue to save and invest that difference. And even in the worst possible investments, you know, financial people normally will tell you that bonds, precious double E bonds, are not the best investment. And true enough, it probably is so. But if you let your, those bonds go for 30 years, I've got bonds now that I have to cash every month. And they're four times what I paid for them. And I turn right around on a cash, and I'm not going to spend them. Right. I bought double I or I bonds again. Yep. Up to the point of what I can buy, and I continue to invest in mutual funds. Uh, a couple of funds that you have told me about over listening to your radio program have been the Index 500 Fund and the Total Stock Market Fund, and. Both of those have done very, very well for us. And I say us, I'm talking about my wife and I. So, you know, again, it gets back to having that habit of saving. And then you talked also earlier in your program about earlier in your career, you don't make as much money as you did later in your career. But if you had a savings plan as you were going along, even if you were only putting money in low-growth stuff like bonds and the credit union, over time, you get better off or you can invest in other things, and it becomes a habit. And every time you get a pay increase, instead of going out here and saying, well, I'm going to see if I can spend that, instead, every pay increase I've ever received over the last, I'm talking about not necessarily pay increase, but cost of living increase that I've had over the last 30 years, I've captured at least part of that every time and planned it to automatically go into some kind of a savings plan, which that's what you were talking about a while ago, automatic, you know, payroll deduction type thing where it goes directly into a mutual fund or whatever. And gosh, there are so many good vehicles now, your 401k and your IRAs compared to what there was back when I first started saving, it's scary to me. Had I had those vehicles back when I started, I'd be worth 10 times what I'm worth. Now. Yeah, that's powerful stuff. You go straight yeah. to the head of the class, and what people <laughs> just heard was advice from, I don't know Bill. I, I don't you know that I know Bill. but I'm in people. Well, thank you. Uh, but... This is classic Millionaire Next. If you talk to, if you read the book Millionaire Next Door, I mean, this is exactly what you have. Live beyond your means, invest the difference in appreciating assets. Don't try to keep up with the Joneses because the Joneses can't keep up with the Joneses. So why why even try? And because of that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Bill, I'm glad things have worked out for you. Feel free to send a nice check over to Rudy Wealth Management for all that (laughs) special advice we gave you. But. uh, But anyway, I'm very happy for you, and I, I think you added a lot. I'm sorry? I appreciate advice over the years. Okay. You guys do a great job on your program. Well, we appreciate your comment. Thank you very much. We got a couple of texts. It says, last summer I spent some time reallocating my portfolio because it was out of line with my targets. I quit reallocating before I reached my target allocation. I bought bonds and HIP funds, which are Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, which is an inflation-adjusted bond, just as an aside. Uh, Bond funds have low or negative returns in a rising interest rate environment. How do you recommend diversifying out of stocks at this time? And we talked about a little bit about that earlier. That's the 
That's the investor's dilemma right now. I know something's telling me that I really don't need to have 70% in stocks. I could be 50% in stocks, but what the heck do I do with that 10 or 20% difference? That's, that's the investor's paradox right now. I don't think it's a paradox, really. I think it's, if, you know, it all circles back to if, you know, you should never risk what you have and need for what you don't have and don't need. And if a 50-50 allocation, that is 50% stocks, 50% bonds, is going to allow you, according to your advisor, to do everything you wanted to do in life and potentially even grow your, your nest egg, uh, then why be 70 or 80% stock? There has to be a good reason for that. And uh, But then the always circles back to what you do with it. You put it in assets that aren't impacted negatively by really bad stuff. So you're always, you know, you're all, you're this, this portion that's in the great companies of America and the world are there so you can eat and the bonds are there so you can sleep. People hate bonds, but I remind people of what a fat tail is. Now a fat tail, if you look at a distribution of outcomes, it's these things way at the outer banks that have really low probabilities. But if they show up, they change your life. A good example is September of 1929 through June of 1932, where the broad U.S. stock market fell 85%. So in order to take on uncertainty that you don't need uh, for a higher return, you're exposing money unnecessarily to an event like that. And an event like that, I promise people, will change their life even if it's not purely financial, just psychologically, it all goes, you, you just, people won't be able to handle it um, if history's any guide. So it's never fun to talk about something like a depression as if it's going to happen. That's not my point that it's going to happen. But, nobody, but something that's happened before can certainly happen again. And if a stock market fell 85% once, I don't think it's going to, but it can, and that's the whole point. And so if you have 80% stock exposure when a 40% stock exposure would run your life just perfectly, you're, you're just purposely taking on that risk. And, and that's, that's, we've talked about that at, at work a lot, guys. I go, that's, that's the only thing that can really disrupt. I don't think a 50% decline should disrupt a retirement portfolio in any material sense. It's a global depression in a 80 or 85% decline over a period of years is going to be the undoing of most people's retirement plans if they're overexposed. And a lot of people, I think, right now are overexposed. Yeah. Well, oh, I was going to say, at the end of the day, you have to ask, like, well, what purpose am I trying to accomplish with these bonds? And I think they, bonds can still, and it's always been this case, can still accomplish the key roles that bonds play in a portfolio. One is just dampening volatility so you can sleep better at night. And what kind of goes along with that is hopefully it's, it, it allows you to stick with the portfolio allocation because a lot of people just simply could not stick with 100% stock allocation. And then two is if you're retired or you're going to need the money in the next few years, it's a source of, of portfolio withdrawals or income that you, you can withdraw from the bond portion if the stock market happened to fall 30%. It's a way to avoid interrupting that long-term compounding of the stock market. So for retirees, it's particularly important. You know, for most of our clients, we're withdrawing money every single month. If we were 100% stock and you get hit with a huge market decline, now you're selling shares of stock. You know, you're going to have to sell a whole bunch of shares just to generate that monthly income. Or as Jimmy John says, you're eating the legs and not the eggs. <laughs> right. So it, it can fulfill those two roles. It's kind of like this war chest that you can withdraw from if you ever need cash in the future particularly important for retirees. And two is just making sure that you can sleep at night and stick with the portfolio. And I know in, in one you know important thing to consider too is the, the length of the bonds that you're holding. So you can hold bonds that are one-year maturity, five-year maturity, all the way up to 30-year maturity. And for the interest the interest rate mark, like market that we're in right now with potentially high inflation looming or is what a lot of people are fearing is high inflation, um, the, high, the longer you hold these 30-year bonds, for example, the more they're going to be impacted. If you have shorter-term bonds, uh, the inflation is going to be a muted effect on those shorter-term bonds because they're paying out lower interest rate. So for, for our world anyway, we're having most of our clients in relatively very short-term uh, maturity bonds. So there's very little impact. Um, when you say short, guys, what are we talking about? Five years. Five years max yep. for yep. the most part. Yep. So that, you know... 
there's you know ways to diversify within the bond world. So it's not that all bonds are created equal either. Right. So yeah, I mean, if interest rates pop up, if you have short-term bonds, you know, two-year maturity or five-year maturity, somewhere in that range. Right. Hopefully, you know, if it's a, a fund, a lot of those bonds are going to be maturing. You're going to be reinvesting in new bonds. With well, that was a question, rates. a follow-up question, not to the same person, but was how do you deal with bonds now? We expect interest rates to climb, which suggests investing in bond funds may not be advisable for now. I disagree with that. It just says if interest rates rise, bond prices go down temporarily, and you have to get used to that. But if bonds are an appropriate portion of your portfolio, uh, just quit thinking about it. Free yourself from thinking about it. You can't control what interest rates are going to do. It's just keep working your plan and stick within that allocation. And and bonds have never been designed to generate a high return. They never That's have. not the role that they play right. in a portfolio. And I think people want I think people are asking bonds to do something they were never created to do. Right. So when when C D six month CDs were sixteen percent, you lopped off about six percent in taxes, certainly at least five back then. The, the, in, the tax rate marginal tax rates were higher. And maybe you left you with ten percent or eleven, but inflation was thirteen. So we really need to think about our bonds after tax well, the only sane way of thinking of any investment is after taxes and inflation uh and and bonds really aren't that aren't any more uh any aren't more ineffective now than they've ever been but it sounds like that's something you wouldn't want to be in but as you laid out really well bonds serve a purpose but don't ask that purpose to be something that that is not their purpose and i think that's what people are trying to do and, and if, trying to make a dog a cat and if you're still working and it's money that you're setting aside for retirement you don't need to own bonds that's the other thing it's like you know, you hear the rules of thumb, your age minus whatever, you know. But if if you're 30 years old and you're putting money in a 401k, yeah, you don't need to own bonds. Right. You know what I mean? Right. But for retirees, most retirees are going to have a portion of their portfolio that's not in the stock market. That right. has to be somewhere unless you're going to go to some exotic asset classes. It's going to default to bonds or treasury notes or treasury bills, I-bonds, et cetera. And, and that's that's just the deal, and sound, I sound mean. But as Morgan Housel wrote, the most important question is not, how can I earn the highest returns? It's what are the best returns I can sustain for the longest period of time? And I think that's powerful. And you, have to, you can't think of your bonds and your stocks separately. You have to look at the overall portfolio level. Is, that, is, the, is it allocated? Is it aligned with my purpose? And if that's the case, quit fixating on the fact that bonds aren't paying much. A 60-40 portfolio was probably up 12, 13, 14 percent in 2021. Okay, so the bonds didn't contribute anything, but you outpaced inflation by six or seven percent. You know, that's that's just the deal. Well, and it it still gets back to you have to be able to stick with it. So yeah, you could start out with 100 percent stock allocation. You technically have the highest expected return possible by not owning any bonds. But if you can't stick with it, you're not going to actually earn that higher expected return. And that's a lot A lot of people. There's very few, I think, that could handle 100% stock allocation. In the last few minutes, I want to talk about 2018 study. It's a little outdated, but I don't think the, the message and the results are outdated. A Journal of Personal Finance surveyed retirees to get a sense of the psychology behind their caution and spending. However, the main takeaway is the reluctance to spend is pervasive. Uh, I think that's that's largely the case that we experience, that um, that you really have to push clients many times that if they can't spend it, then to give it to your kids if, if you know, if it's going to help their lives. Um, and the study kind of makes common sense. You know, when older people look into the future, one of the enormous unknowns is how much will they need for medical care? And then that leads to, well, and then there's always this potential expensive long-term care. Uh, and so... I, you can see one group of people, that's probably a reason. Then the, another group of people, the study says, is they're just afraid of the ups and downs in the stock market. Uh, but as Bill uh, so eloquently stated, you know, if you really step back and don't think of the stock market as a stock market, but think of it as, a, as a, the great companies of America and the world that, as Bill put, I've always felt like these great corporations and the innovators that run them, it's kind of a self-healing process. As, as Bill said, you know the long the lifetime upturn uptrend is permanent but the capital markets will outrun themselves above and below that uh, trend line and for lots of reasons most of them psychological uh, sometimes you're just in a recession but even then that's 
impacts earnings and they go down. But when the permanent uptrend reasserts itself, that's the force that I think people need to recognize. And that, and then as Bill said, uh, to me, the reason it always gets better is these companies just have this self-healing effect. That is, when times are really good, it's painful. We all know in any company that we have people that probably aren't pulling their weight. But when things are good, it's pretty painful. So we don't like to make decisions that impact people's lives. But under the cover of like a great financial crisis, for example, everybody's kind of sort of has permission to clean house, uh, get out of projects that aren't profitable, be, learn to become more productive. And then as, we, as the economy reasserts itself to the permanent uptrend, these companies are in much better position to not only go back to the earnings they had before, but to go, their earnings go much higher. And I think this is what explains the 75 all-time new highs last year is we probably had 75 adjustments in earnings at all-time new highs. That's just my guess. And the way I think of it is just so much easier to have faith in human ingenuity and problems, like our ability to problem solve and increase earnings over time than it is to have faith that, quote, the stock market will go up. I think so, too. I think because I think it is it's it's a bet on human ingenuity. And I think to bet against that is exhaustive and counterproductive and probably makes you poor, poorer than you would be if you bet with it. Oh, I thought you were. Did you have something to say, Ryan? Oh, yeah. I I knocked my watch on the table. You're very (laughs) very sensitive to me over here. today. So anyway, uh, 2021, guys, was an interesting year. Uh, I think people are still shaking their heads saying, how can the stock market in a pandemic go up 100 percent? Uh, over the last three years, the broad U.S. market. Uh, and the question is, that's what, that's what markets kind of, yeah. that's what they do when they, when they, they all, Mar- Marty Zweig used to always say, the stock market behaves in a way to screw the most people it can at any one time. And so during the pandemic, a lot of people panicked and they made bad decisions and the market goes up 100%. Certainly that left some people behind. Uh, and some, and then when people get too optimistic, and they get over their skis, and the market goes into a forty or fifty percent decline. <laughs> you know, so I think Marty Zweig's right. So, happy New Year to everybody. We'll be back in a couple of weeks and with more Paul Ruiz on the Money Radio Show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On the Money here on DWS, paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. You can join Paul on the second and fourth Tuesdays of each month here on News Talk 1400 and 93.9 FM. The views expressed in this program were those of the host and the guests and not necessarily those of the station. You're listening to News Talk 1400 and 93.9 FM WDWS Champaign-Urbana, a Champaign multimedia group station. 